So the SEC is paying out a whole lot of money to whistleblowers, but why do we know so little about who these whistleblowers are and what they blew the whistle on? And why is a huge chunk of that money going to the clients of attorneys who used to work at the SEC? The results of a big Bloomberg Law investigation coming up. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So just this morning, we published a big investigative story looking into what one of our guests today calls the whistleblower industrial complex. The story by reporter John Holland looked into a program set up by the SEC in the wake of the Bernie Madoff scandal of the late 2000s. The program has paid out more than $1.3 billion to people who come forward with information about fraud committed against investors. But as John found out, Neither the courts nor Congress, let alone the public, have a good sense of where this money is going or what the SEC has gained from paying it out. And furthermore, whistleblowers represented by a firm that employs two former SEC attorneys, attorneys who themselves helped set up this program, are getting the lion's share of this $1.3 billion bounty, despite the agency rejecting 99% of the tens of thousands of tips it receives. Today, we're going to hear a conversation John had with two of his sources for this investigation, University of Kansas law professor Alex Platt and Ruben Gutman, a partner at Gutman, Bushner and Brooks, who represents whistleblowers. Ruben is not one of the former SEC attorneys who are raking in those huge client fees, and he says there needs to be more light shed on the clients of those who are. But let's start off with the reporter who wrote the story, John Holland. He talked about how he started working on this project and what led him to pursue it. What we were trying to do with this story, and I think uh, you, Alex, especially when you were examining the program, we were trying to do a couple things. We wanted to see if the secrecy went beyond what was needed to protect the identity of the whistleblower and if the decision-making was sound. Uh, what we found out fairly quickly is there was almost no mechanism to review their um, decision-making, and that was when I got more interested. To me, when you're handing out $1.3 billion, you sh should be able to publicly defend your decisions. And in this case, there was just no mechanism to do this. And that's what got us interested in the beginning. As we started to unwind and they fought us over very simple freedom of information requests, simple FOIAs, I started getting even more suspicious. So that's where we went. And ultimately, as we continued, we found that two lawyers uh, that ran the program at various points. One of them wrote the program rules, the other oversaw the program for five years, seemed to be benefiting far more than any other law firms. And so that was the basis where we got going. But Alex and Ruben know the program far better than I do, and they had different aspects that they thought were interesting. Alex, what got you started on this, and what did you find? I got interested in this program because um, it seemed to be an exception to the general rule that SEC attorneys and plaintiff side attorneys do not mix. Those are the two main groups of attorneys who enforce the federal securities laws. You've got SEC enforcement and you've got private plaintiff's attorneys. I found in an earlier study, there's no revolving door between those two groups. But I found in that earlier study, there seemed to be an exception. Uh, for this emerging area of whistleblower practice. There were a couple of these high-profile cases where former SEC leaders had joined uh, whistleblower practices. And that small piece of that earlier paper led me to file a FOIA request back in August 2020 
uh, with the SEC seeking information about all the attorneys who had successfully represented whistleblowers in that program. And uh, as you mentioned, John, uh, they uh, really fought me on this request. Um, uh, And so now, finally, two years on, we have um, more or less uh, uh, the first decade worth of information. Uh, And as you mentioned, John, in your piece, it does point to some serious questions about the program. And in particular, the question is, are these programs really being run in the public interest or have they instead been captured by uh, a small group of very well-connected repeat player attorneys? Now, Ruben, you handle, obviously you do whistleblower cases, not with the SEC, but usually False Claims Act. What are some of the obvious deficiencies that you see in the SEC program compared to what you've dealt with over the years in FCA? Well, there's absolutely, John, no transparency in the SEC uh, whistleblower program. Uh, It's like a big black box that you can't uh, see inside. And um, we filed a few SEC whistleblower complaints. Uh, We don't get calls back from the investigators. We don't know the status of the investigation. And in one situation, uh, the SEC actually pursued the wrongdoer and secured a monetary penalty. And we had a conversation with the uh, head of the SEC whistleblower program uh, to discuss the potential for a bounty. And she said to us, well, we need to task a separate team to determine what it is that your clients uh, contributed to this uh, effort. And we were taken aback because we thought surely they would have reviewed the information. The line attorneys would know exactly what our folks were doing. And it took them literally two years to make a determination uh, that our clients were entitled to nothing. And in fact, uh, there was no uh, justification. We never, never understood who actually got the award or why they got the award. Um, but the thing that's the most disturbing about this is, is that um, when you think about whistleblowers, you think about people who are being vocal about something. And this is a situation where the whistleblowers are silent. We don't know their names. We don't know the scheme that they're reporting on. And we don't know the the defendant. And um, generally what whistleblowers tell us uh, are things that allow us to engage in prophylactic relief going forward. And we've learned nothing whatsoever Uh, from any of these efforts. The $1.3 billion that you started off talking about when we began this discussion has bought uh, absolutely uh, no new knowledge to the greater securities community. And that goes to something that I really wanted to focus on is the black box aspect. We have several cases that we looked at where there'd be seven, eight, nine claimants and the SEC commission would award two of them the money and not the other seven. And we wanted to examine, did these clients, were they represented by former agency attorneys, for instance? Were they involved in um, various stock swindling themselves? We wanted to determine whether they were making sound, rational decisions. And it We couldn't. It was impossible. And that is the bottom line with this program. And they're giving away $1.3 billion of public money, and they're telling the public, trust us. 
they are doing nothing to shoe, to prove their work. And that to me is, I've never covered any public agency that is saying, we're giving your money away, we're not telling you how we're doing it and why. A couple of times now, I've heard you both refer to the 1.3 billion, and this is a figure we hear a lot um, from the agency. We've paid $1.3 billion to whistleblowers. Well, that's not quite accurate. Um, one thing that we uncovered here is that um, for the most part, the successful whistleblowers are represented by counsel, uh, and these counsel are typically charging 35, 40% plus costs. So the actual figure uh, of if you care about the money that was actually paid to whistleblowers is closer to half the amount that the SEC um, is, is telling us and telling Congress that it has paid to whistleblowers. I guess my take is a little bit different. Um, the the question is what you're getting for this $1.3 billion, right? Um, the measure of success of the program is not that you've given away $1.3 billion. The measure of success is something that we don't know. It's an unknown. What have we learned? What schemes have come to light because of these whistleblowers? What prophylactic measures have been taken? I do False Claims Act litigation. And I've done a lot of litigation in the off-label marketing and kickback area with regard to pharmaceuticals. And I know for a fact that there's a bit more transparency in those cases because complaints are filed in court, settlements are reached. Um, they're not perfect in the sense that there's not complete transparency, but there's enough to alert the medical community of what went on and what the whistleblower contributed and what other whistleblowers need to look for in order to identify improprieties. If you give away $1.3 billion and you prevent another Madoff or Enron or WorldCom or Tyco, and you can actually connect the dots and say, this is what we learned from these whistleblowers, you know, that's one thing. But to say we've given away $1.3 billion without saying what we've purchased is another thing. The, kind of the flip side is, if your program is so either complicated or not transparent, that you need a lawyer to guide you through it, as opposed to being able to go directly to the SEC and trust that they will follow up and do a real investigation. Is that undercutting? Because so much of what this was, was to empower people on Wall Street when they see fraud to call the SEC. Is it a sign that if you need attorneys, maybe the program isn't set up quite the way it should be operating? I would go even further, John. I would say, um, uh, or perhaps uh, just to frame it slightly differently, uh, every whistleblower attorney would agree, I think, with this statement. Uh, if you want high-level executives to come forward, you're going to have to offer some big bucks because these people are sacrificing potentially the rest of their careers. So they need to take, they need to take that risk knowing there's a payout, uh, a big payout. Well, um, if 50% of that payout's going to end up on the floor that's going to sap their incentive to come forward. But why shouldn't attorneys get paid? Attorneys for sure should get paid. The question is when you have dominant firms who have unique connections and trust, as it appears we have here, um, that makes it impossible for other firms to compete. So you don't have 
free and fair competition in the market for whistleblower legal services, what you have is a couple of well-connected firms who have a unique advantage. So that means um, even if Ruben is a better lawyer and has a crack team of excellent lawyers around him, and even if Ruben's going to offer to 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 charge less, maybe Ruben would offer uh, 15% uh, instead of 40%. If you're an executive, you're not going with Ruben. Why? Because you know uh, that uh, your best bet is going with one of uh, the two or three firms who have the SEC's ear. What that means is the prices are going to stay high for these services. And as any economist will tell you, uh, when prices are high, uh, demand will be lower. It strikes me that the cure for that problem, and I think you articulated it well, is just sunshine. Open this up. Say which attorneys are profiting. Say what type of cases you take. Say this is what we did in the course of our investigation. Here is what we found. Here is why we chose this case and not others. It seems like if you just put a spotlight on the program, make it accountable and public, a lot of the troubles you just described would disappear. John, John, I completely agree with you. I think the first thing you've got to do is uh, create a dynamic where the SEC discloses what the whistleblower told them. In other words, you don't even get into the question of who this person is, but what did you learn from this person? What documents did he give you? What, What did that complaint look like? What was the work that was done by this person that generated the award? That will give the public some kind of comfort level. The second problem that we have is the Markopoulos problem, which is Harry Markopoulos you know, reports on Madoff over and over and over again, and nobody reads his complaints or nobody responds to it. We don't have enough staff at the F- SEC. However big, big the investigative staff is, somebody's got to take a look at it and make sure that it's commensurate with the number of complaints that are coming in the door so that you can evaluate evaluate these complaints. One thing that both of you talked about is in the early years, basically the goal early on was to get publicity for the program, let the world know it's out there, let whistleblowers know they had a place they could turn. And if that meant maybe being a little like the Wild West, as Alex called it, so be it if it, it was a good trade-off. Now you're a decade into the program. Clearly, people are taking advantage of the Wild West aspect. If you were Gary Gensler, each of you, what would you do next if you were suddenly the SEC commissioner? Well, I would think long and hard about how to make the program transparent. And um, I would look at not look at the audience of the whistleblower lawyers or that whistleblower community to determine whether what I'm doing is the right thing because those folks are not going to be critical of this program. Uh, This program's been going on for a decade, and the whistleblower lawyers know darn well that there's problems with the program. And quite frankly, they have their hands out waiting for an award, and for most of them, it's never going to come, and they're not going to be critical. Meanwhile, the SEC is measuring the success of the program by how much money it gives out, right? I would refocus, I was Gary Gensler, and I would say, I want to be in a situation where I'm issuing a press release that says, this is what we learned from this whistleblower, and this allowed us to bring this culprit, right, under compliance, and this is why the public and the investment community is going to be better off tomorrow. And if those lessons start to become more public, then people are going to say, you know what, whistleblowers play a role in this in this scheme, just as, for example, we valued Ralph Nader's work in making our cars safer. And Alex, what would you do if you were in charge of the program? So I've got a, a, a litany of uh, proposals. Um, at the highest level, though, I just want to jump on something Ruben said. 
One mistake I've seen over and over again by academics, by some journalists, by policymakers, even some policymakers you would expect to know better, is to conflate the interests of whistleblowers and whistleblower lawyers. In many cases, their interests do overlap, but in some very important respects, they do not. They do not overlap. And so, uh, like Ruben, I think, was saying, uh, SEC officials, senators, congressmen, by all means, listen to the whistleblower lawyers, uh, hear what they have to say. Do not take them as expressing the same views as what whistleblowers themselves would say. Well, if I'm the SEC, I want lawyers to be involved because the lawyers are going to screen the tips to make sure that what's filed has some substance. You don't want to burden the SEC with you know random people filing information with the agency absent some information. The lawyer is going to look at the facts. He's going to match the facts against the law and perhaps even the jury instructions or the elements of the cause of action. The lawyer is going to be able to identify certain schemes, for example, like stuffing the distribution channel. And the lawyer is going to put the facts into the scheme. And that will solve a, that will, that will solve a lot of work or address a lot of work that the agency should have done. So there's an important role for the lawyers, number one. Number two, I think it's important that to know that, that a tipster who works at a corporation has access to all kinds of information. And some of that information may be encompassed by the attorney-client privilege. And the value of a lawyer is the lawyer has the ability to screen that information out and make sure the agency doesn't get it. Because if the agency gets it, it will taint his ability to recover, but more importantly, it'll blow the privilege for the corporation. So if I'm a corporation, I actually want want the whistleblower to have a lawyer because in theory, that person, that lawyer is obligated to protect the attorney-client privilege. What the SEC can do is they can, they, they view anybody who's filing a claim, any lawyer who's filing a claim as someone who's practicing before the commission. The SEC can do a better job of educating these people, bringing them in for conferences, telling them what schemes to look for, doing it in a transparent way, and telling them how to be more helpful to the agency, and even publishing the names of everybody who's practicing before the commission as a whistleblower lawyer. I thought Jason Zuckerman, one of the attorneys we talked to, said he acknowledged the connections matter. He made no bones about that. But he, he also said, we basically triage for them. We weed out the bad cases. When we drop something off, they're in better hands than if they were doing it blind. And I thought that was a, it was a real point, it, especially with the limited resources. You could argue if they tripled their staff, they may not need it. But the reality is right now, they may need that intermediary. The question is more, to, in my mind, the secrecy in the decision making. I'll say that uh, this may be true. The screening, the, the very judicious triage may be true for some whistleblower lawyers. But there are other whistleblower lawyers who on their websites say things like, we have submitted more than 200 cases or more than 100 cases currently pending or we have blown the whistle for clients hundreds of times. So there are different kinds of whistleblower lawyers out there, some of whom may be limiting the flow, some of whom may be increasing the flow. 
the, the bottom line is, Professor, that you and I can't sit in a room and talk to each other about the solution in real terms because the facts aren't transparent. The facts aren't transparent. We can't get to the bottom of whether this program is affected because we don't know what it's delivered for us, right? And part of I, what I'm seeing from you is some frustration about, well, you know, we're paying all this money out and the lawyers are getting it, and obviously that seems to be a problem. And my, from my vantage point, I say we're paying all this money out and we didn't get anything for it, right? It's like spending $60,000 on a car with no wheels or no engine. I don't know. Um, and the public needs to know. And I, I do know about the history of whistleblowing in this country, from Rachel Carson to Ralph Nader, um, and those who spoke out in the civil rights movement, they challenged the status quo, and all of a sudden people began to think about the status quo possibly being uh, improper. And they add value. That I do know. And I find this situation to me to be quite tragic because we've spent $1.3 billion and we don't know what we've bought for it. And we don't even have enough information to figure out how to make the, the program better, what the fix is. Those were the voices of Bloomberg Law reporter John Holland, University of Kansas Law Professor Alex Platt, and whistleblower attorney Ruben Gutman. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you next week. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court, the filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Bloomberg Law's Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon of the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.